Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 182, Snowballs, Bullets, and Wedding Bells. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patron, Scott Akers. Thank you so much, Scott. I'll be reaching out soon with your Patreon benefits. And for everyone else, consider supporting if you can. But if you can't, enjoy the show. So with that, let's get into it. Now, last time, a bombshell newspaper report accused former Prime Minister Petrov and Defense Minister Savov of illegally profiting from Austro-Hungarian arms purchases. While both men would eventually win lawsuits over the issue, it still derailed their careers. Still, Petrov resigned as prime minister, meaning that the Stambulovist government would no longer be run by a Ferdinand ally, but the party's actual leader, Dmitry Petkov. So, not Petrov, Petkov. In Macedonia, despite orders from Athens to calm things down after the international backlash from the massacre of the city, I got the name wrong and I forgot to change it in my notes, so you know the one I'm talking about, violence perpetrated by Greek Cheti increased markedly. One of the founders of the MRO, Dom Gruev, was killed by Ottoman forces there as well. Losing another potentially unifying figure, the MRO faced more factional infighting where each side held its own congresses and basically began to denounce the other, and that split deepened. This culminated in the left wing organizing the assassination of Boris Sarafov and Ivan Gervanov, further solidifying the rupture between the two sides. Now, Let's pick back up at the beginning of 1907. This year marked the 20th anniversary of Ferdinand's reign. He may have recently lost his close ally as prime minister, but make no mistake, he was still in firm control of Bulgaria's politics and foreign policy. However, despite all his success, this new year didn't start off with the right foot for him. Just three days into 1907, the prince was attending the opening of the newly completed National Theatre in Sofia. As his carriage arrived at the theater, uh, which arriving by carriage says a lot about Ferdinand, considering the walk from his palace to that theater is probably two minutes. You know, it's a very short place for anyone who's been to Sofia. Anyways, he arrives by carriage because of course he does. And he was met with a massive crowd of young demonstrators. These students were angry about a lot of different things at once. For one, they were protesting the new Minister of Education under Dmitry Petkov's government, who aimed to reduce Sofia University's independence. They also saw this as evidence that Prince Ferdinand was increasing his level of control and becoming more autocratic. The students were also in part demonstrating in solidarity with striking railroad workers that I mentioned last episode, as well as somewhat under the inspiration of the ongoing, at this point, Russian Revolution showing the extent to which socialism and internationalism had gained a foothold amongst Bulgaria's small university population, which is something we've seen for a while. Finally, the students were also upset that they had been given very few seats to the theater's opening. Protester Bozhidar Zdravkov summarized this grievance, writing, quote, We were affected by the committee's disregard for professors and writers, cultural workers whose place is here, who were given back seats and some were not even invited, when second lieutenants from the Sofia's garrison, four tickets for each officer of each regiment, people who were least affected by the celebration, 
were given so many places in the first rows, end quote. So obviously this is a, a smaller grievance than the other, but it, it is a real one and shows basically where the government's sympathies lie, where its focus was with the military and not really caring much about cultural people. So the list of grievances is long. And when Ferdinand arrived, he was greeted by booing, hissing, and a few students even throwing snowballs at him. Now, of course, you will be shocked to learn that Ferdinand did not take this well. He blamed the university professors for, you know, not disciplining or, or teaching these children some manners, I suppose. And some of those university professors were actually prominent amongst the relatively new, but still small anti-monarchist radical democratic party. So yeah, Ferdinand already didn't like the professors of Sophie University, and this made him like them, him like them even less. Now, Ferdinand, always one to react calmly and appropriately to criticism, decided to, uh, checking my notes here, close Sophia University for six months and fire every single professor and even arrest some of the students who were involved. Now, a few students were thrown into prison while others were actually called up for military service. Presumably, I'm, I'm going to assume that being a university student exempted you, and because they were kicked out, they were no longer exempt, so into the army with you. Students and faculty were understandably upset that the university was shut down and all the professors fired and attempted to hold rallies to protest the decision, but the police and the army blockaded the university building to prevent them from entering. Now, frankly, it's hard to argue that this wasn't a bit of an overreaction to some booing and some snowballs, and it did make Ferdinand look pretty bad in, uh, in Bulgaria and throughout Europe. It made him look a bit petty and like he was overreacting. But in the short term, it inspired the formation of a unified opposition group of political parties that called itself the Patriotic Bloc, headed by the Conservative People's Party, which you'll recall had won the overwhelming percentage of the vote in the elections four years earlier. But still, Ferdinand had never allowed them to actually govern because that's how he ran Bulgaria at this point. Now, the political response to all this was the dismissal of the Minister of Education, which to be fair, doesn't seem to have been anywhere near enough action for anyone to be satisfied, uh, as well as some legislation banning students from being members of political organizations, yeah, good luck on that, getting rid of autonomy for universities, and yet further empowering Ferdinand to push back against any news outlet that criticized him. So yeah, the government is backing Ferdinand, and although they did fire the Minister, Minister of Education, in general, they're cracking down even harder and trying to kind of depoliticize and control universities and the press. So the idea here was that students should be apolitical, which again, comical, uh, and that the government should be deeply involved in the hiring and firing of professors, and even choices about how to discipline students when they break the rules. For all this to work, the government would still need to find professors to teach. Now, this proved difficult because the dismissed professors that the government was willing to bring back didn't want to return out of solidarity with their colleagues. And as it turns out, the Principality of Bulgaria in 1907 is not brimming with qualified university professors ready to take up a teaching job at the drop of a hat. So they brought in rather unqualified high school teachers to teach at Sofia University instead. So. While the university was supposed to reopen in June, they didn't manage until the fall, and by then the quality of the new professors was so bad that the press had a field day mocking them. Some faculties like law couldn't manage to reopen at all because they just couldn't find anyone who could teach those lessons. The result was that 
compared to the pre-crisis student population of about 1,300, Sofia University now had barely 100 students, and most of them were civil servants or people who worked for the government. So yeah, Sofia University functionally doesn't even exist anymore. In other words, Ferdinand's bluff had been called, and his attempt to take greater control of Sofia University was, by all accounts, an unmitigated disaster. But for now, I'll leave the conclusion of this crisis in the future. In the meantime, though, the Petkov government wasn't just trying to depoliticize the university and its students. It also passed a law banning banning clerks and other white-collar workers from forming unions. So yet another way to try to kind of depoliticize any, you know, groups or organizations within Bulgarian society that the government feared might oppose them. So in general, pretty clear evidence that you know, the fears of those university students were quite right that Ferdinand and his governments are indeed becoming even more autocratic, even seemingly more than in the old Stambolov times. Now, clearly the government was concerned about increased labor agitation, political opposition, and no doubt saw the Russian Revolution as an example of what could happen if they didn't keep these forces under control. Despite this and the failure of that railway strike that the students were partially protesting in favor of, Though soon the Bulgarian Railroad Workers Union was formed as an arm of the Socialist Party. Although I couldn't find out which Socialist Party because remember they divided into the broad and the narrow socialist. But anyways, what you need to know is the government is trying to crack down on a lot of this kind of political formation, union formation kind of things. But still a Railroad Workers Union has been formed and it's associated with a political group. However, Right in the middle of all this political turmoil swirling around Ferdinand, his world was rocked by the death of his mother, Clementine of Bourbon-Orléans, at the age of 89. Daughter of the last king of France and a major donor to charitable charitable projects in Bulgaria, you'll recall that she's been a critical actor in installing Ferdinand on the Bulgarian throne and has acted as a close advisor ever since because, well, This is a woman who spent her entire life drowning in court politics, and she was very, very good at playing that game. Now, her importance was so great that many commentators predicted that Ferdinand's, basically his reign, would fall apart without her assistance. To be fair, Ferdinand himself was devastated. You know, we've seen in in this podcast that he was very close to his mother, loved her very much, and, you know, did rely on her for advice. So, at this point, it's easy to imagine that 1907 is shaping up to be his own Annas Horribles, you know, the horrible year. Those of you who watch The Crown know what I'm talking about, but it's been a pretty bad year for him. Stephen Constant describes it like this, writing, quote, The year of 1907 was one of tension for Ferdinand, dominated by the oppressive feeling of a gathering storm. There were evenings of intense anxiety when he ordered 13 candles to be lit in his bedroom in order to prevent his night's sleep from baneful influences. It seemed that he was summoning the occult powers to fill the void left by his mother, end quote. Now, in particular, Ferdinand was frustrated by his inability to find a political path towards both the resolution of the ongoing violence in Macedonia and to Bulgaria finally obtaining full independence from the Ottoman Empire, you know, essentially his two major foreign policy goals. Indeed, By this point, Ferdinand was putting out feelers to kind of gauge international reactions to the possibility of him declaring Bulgaria fully independent from the Ottoman Empire. However, as Ferdinand contemplated his political options, events at home were moving quickly. 
the government took out yet another massive French loan to finance some infrastructure, but mostly to buy more weapons for the army. Again, a reminder that at this point, about one-third of the Bulgarian national budget was going towards the army. Then, one late afternoon in Mar- on March 11th, a former clerk from the Bulgarian Agricultural Bank who was affiliated with the conservative opposition walked up to Prime Minister Petkov, uh, pretty close to where the modern Sofia University building is, and shot him. He died shortly afterwards at the age of 48. It was yet another case of a disgruntled former civil servant seeking revenge on politicians who had put him out of a job. Now, today, most governments hold a clear distinction between political appointments, which are jobs that change hands whenever the political party does, and regular positions held by career civil servants who remain at their post no matter who takes power and, you know, carry over knowledge between political administrations. Now, as I mentioned, Bulgaria at this time was run on a model where nearly every position was political, meaning that whenever the government changed, a ton of people lost their jobs. And this also created bad incentives, ensuring that people without enough experience ran many important offices because, you know, if you have one key office, you don't necessarily have, you know, six different qualified people to represent the six possible political parties who might take power. And this also, as we've seen just now, created a lot of jobless and deeply resentful people. So, in the aftermath of the assassination, a new cabinet from that same Stambulovist People's Party was selected with Dmitry Stanchov taking the role of prime minister. However, this is just basically a placeholder administration, and within a few days a more permanent government was formed by Peter Gudev of the same political party. Now, the 44-year-old Gudev had studied law in Paris and Brussels and had recently served as chairman of the National Assembly as well as Minister of the Interior, so he was pretty experienced. The new government quickly picked up where the last one left off, using that recent French loan to continue army expansion as well as passing the first law creating a kind of Bulgarian stock market and creating a secret police force, so more in the uh, kind of autocratic repression mold, and yet more cracking down on the free press. Over the summer, Ferdinand traveled to Vienna to meet with the Austro-Hungarian emperor, who urged him to hold off on declaring independence. Remember, he's putting out those feelers, trying to decide if it's a good time. This meeting was also used to kind of ease tensions between Sofia and Vienna, because you'll recall that the Austro-Hungarians were currently embroiled in the so-called pig war of trade embargoes and near conflict with Serbia. Cozing up to Vienna was an easy way for Sofia to increase pressure on Belgrade to reduce its actions in Macedonia, because while we've talked more about those Greek Cheti going into Macedonia and creating a lot of violence, there were, I think, fewer, but still quite a few Serbian groups doing the exact same thing. So, you know, improving relations with Vienna was without a doubt a diplomatic win for Ferdinand. However, What remains to be seen is how the Russians are going to react because, well, we've seen Fernand's trying to kind of play that balancing game between St. Petersburg and Vienna. And at this point, the Russians were just finishing up the process of putting down their revolution. And so, you know, for now they're distracted. But once things get a bit back to normal there, we'll have to see what their response is. Now, the rest of 1907 was fairly quiet aside from the assassinations of Sarafov and Gervanov that I talked about last time and the resulting finalized kind of split of the MRO. In one of its final acts, the government of Gudev actually passed a new law for teachers, increasing support for them, while also, you'll be shocked to find, limiting their ability to participate in politics. 
So once again, whether it's civil servants, students, professors, you know, teachers, the government is passing law after law after law, trying to prevent these groups from being active participants in politics. It's trying to depoliticize a lot of what would otherwise you can imagine be kind of middle-class elements of society. This law also reduced the salaries of female teachers and mandated that only unmarried people could be teachers, which, you know, real progressive stuff, but uh, that was you know, a bit more normal in the more conservative times then. You know, I think it was envisioned, yeah, that teachers should be mostly young unmarried women for whatever reason. But Gudif's government wasn't long for this world. And in part, over their complete and utter failure to resolve that Sofia University crisis, it was finally dissolved in early 1908. Ferdinand decided that the Stambulovist party's time was up and appointed a new government under the centrist Democratic Party, which is the former party of Kapetko Karavelov. Thus, Ferdinand took the very democratic step of replacing a party that had won fewer than 4% of the seats in the previous election with one that won about 4% of the seats. Uh, so again, this is a bit how Ferdinand controls Bulgarian politics so well. You know, the actual results of elections don't matter that much because he just appoints whoever he wants to form a government, regardless of how many votes they actually got, and they generally manage fine. So the Democratic Party, interestingly enough, had been a member of that patriotic bloc I mentioned, which, you know, was a united opposition to oppose Ferdinand. But Unfortunately, once the, the the Democratic Party was given a chance to govern, it immediately abandoned the group and was willing to mend fences with Ferdinand. So again, showing the extent to which Ferdinand had an iron grip on Bulgarian politics, and even when you know supposedly a big opposition bloc was created against him, he can break it up quite easily. Now, the head of that Democratic Party, the 40-year-old Alexander Milinov, became Bulgaria's new prime minister. He was another Bulgarian from Bessarabia who had attended a boarding school designed to educate South Slavs in Nikolaev, which was then in the Russian Empire, and now, you probably know, a city in Ukraine. He studied law in Kiev before practicing law in Plovdiv and ultimately taking over as the head of the Democratic Party when Petko Karavelov died back in 1903. Now that a new government was in charge, one of its first acts was to end the university crisis by reinstating the old professors and students. You know, all of them. So essentially, it took a new government, but finally someone was willing to, you could say, admit defeat because they were beat. Essentially, the government just returned everything to the status quo ante as a way to swiftly end the crisis so it could tackle bigger challenges. For one, elections were now scheduled for May, and the new government obviously needed to get ready. Elsewhere, though, Despite Ferdinand's work mending relations, Austria-Hungary gave the Macedonian cause unwelcome news when it withdrew its support for reforms there. Essentially, the Ottomans had traded a concession for building a railroad connecting Novi Pazar, which is a region you know, near Kosovo and Bosnia and that kind of area, to Thessaloniki, something that would help connect Austrian-occupied Bosnia and Herzegovina, which again is still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but the Austrians have been there for decades, to the Aegean Sea. In other words, the Ottomans made a deal. Okay, we'll, we'll build this economically advantageous railroad, or I'll let you build a railroad, really, in exchange for you withdrawing your support for us making reforms in Macedonia. But now we come back to Ferdinand. It had been by now several years since the death of his first wife in 1899, and he had decided by now, maybe just with his mother 
you know, passed, although she wasn't living in Bulgaria. But in any case, he decided it was time to get married again. Now, not for love or emotional support, mind you. He was very clear when he asked a Russian duchess if she knew any good candidates that he was looking for someone to look after his four children and make the monarchy look good by engaging in charity works. A suitable candidate would be someone explicitly not looking for affection or even attention. The duchess suggested her cousin, Eleonora Royce Kotstritz, I hope I pronounced that right, a German princess with close ties to the Russian imperial dynasty. She was by this point 48 years old, a year older than Ferdinand, so close, childless, unmarried, and willing to get married on Ferdinand's terms, which I'm kind of surprised he found someone meaning that description so quickly. It seems rather specific, wanting someone, you know, interested in charity work, not looking for affection, willing to kind of become a surrogate mother, willing to become the the princess of this, you know, somewhat tumultuous small Balkan country, but it seems like he had absolutely no trouble. Now, Stephen Constant described her as, quote, plain, efficient, unselfish, and kind woman of incorruptible integrity, who had distinguished herself in caring for wounded Russian soldiers during the Russo-Japanese War. It was the general opinion that she had consented to marry Ferdinand from a spirit of self-sacrifice because of the opportunities offered in Bulgaria for hospital and charitable work, end quote. So, honestly, she sounds nice. <laughs> you know, uh, she's, she's willing to take uh, what seems like a fairly thankless, uh, thankless job and potentially a dangerous one. I mean, Ferdinand at this point is very paranoid about being assassinated, um, but Ferdinand somehow found the perfect candidate very quickly, and the two were married in February in Ferdinand's family seat of Coburg, and she became the second princess of Bulgaria. But although Eleonora was an ideal candidate in nearly any way, that same thorny issue of religion was always present. Now, I, I have to quote Stephen Constant again, because frankly, the way he describes the issue and just how all this played out is hilarious to me. So here we go. Quote, Princess Eleonora was a Lutheran, Ferdinand was an excommunicated Catholic, and the Bulgarian state religion, Orthodox. There were two ceremonies, a Catholic one which was held at Coburg and a Protestant one at Gera, the capital of the Principality of Reuss in Germany. Now, in order to have a proper Catholic marriage, Ferdinand made use of the intricacies of Roman canon law, which allowed the penalty of excommunication to be temporarily suspended for the accomplishment of certain important acts. The penitent is told, Absolvote cum reinvidentia effecto secuto. Apologies for my Latin. After the Coburg marriage ceremony, the papal censure against Ferdinand came into force again. He had only received Rome's permission to marry a Lutheran Protestant woman on the condition that he maintained a strictly passive attitude during the Lutheran wedding ceremony. When the pastor at Dara realized that the prince would not pronounce the sacramental yes, he at first refused to officiate. After long negotiations, a compromise was found. Instead of asking them, in turn, wilt thou Ferdinand and wilt thou Eleonora, the pastor asked collectively, will you, with the remaining words modified accordingly. To this joint question, only she had to answer yes, while he stood by silent. The wedding guests noticed that Prince Ferdinand did not show much enthusiasm during the festivities, but was very affable to his hosts and interested in the long history of the House of Royce. The princess had no illusions and took things as they came. 
For Ferdinand, it was all a necessary chore. The day before the wedding, he joked about her lack of youth and beauty to his confidants and showed them a necklace which he was about to give her with the words, Ceci conviendre à son austère poitrine. Again, sorry if I mispronounced my French, I used to be good at it, but whatever. In other words, he said, This will suit her austere bosom. End quote. Now again, it's just something about the, the intricacies of how those ceremonies had to operate in order to kind of comply with Roman canon law. It's also a bit funny to me that Ferdinand was excommunicated from the Catholic Church and yet still felt that he had to follow their very strict guidelines on how to participate in his own, you know, Protestant version of a wedding ceremony. But uh, you do you, Ferdinand. For, for whatever reason, he still cared very deeply what the Pope thought. Now, on their way back to Bulgaria... The newlyweds visited King Carol of Romania, and Ferdinand was initially outraged that they were given a double bedroom, instead insisting that they would sleep separately. Ferdinand actually did not even wish for them to dine together, instead insisting that Eleonora be given cold meals in her room. But although Ferdinand treated her like a stereotypical stepmother, she was anything but to his four children. In fact, Ferdinand's children, the eldest of whom Boris had just turned 14, while the youngest Nadezhda had just turned nine, quickly grew very fond of Eleonora. She likewise threw herself into charitable work, helping to develop hospitals in Bulgaria. There's a hospital in Sofia named after her. And, well, the other advantage she brought Ferdinand was an acute understanding of politics and diplomacy which could match and complement his own. This was rather lucky because the growing rift between Austria-Hungary and Russia was creating an opportunity for Ferdinand and Bulgaria to finally thaw the Balkans out of the deep freeze imposed by the joint agreement of those two empires signed more than a decade previously. But 1908 was just beginning, and the year already held great promise for Ferdinand. He had secured a wife and was now aiming to secure the thing he truly wanted, a kingdom. Next time, we'll see what the results of that election I mentioned were as the rising figure of the agrarian party reshapes it into a potential new force, uh, as well as a revolution in the Ottoman Empire. And then in the episodes following, we'll cover all the other many, many things that happened in 1908. It's a busy year. All that's to say, you won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com for a lot more information about every one of these episodes. You know, list of major figures, timeline, images, what more could you want? So check it out, and I'll catch you in the next one.